Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. A recent article in Salon magazine views the ongoing decline in American religion in part as an inevitable result of the politicization of Christianity. Where does the temptation to infuse church with political ideology come from? What does politicized religion hope to achieve and what are its consequences? Are there examples of politicization in the Bible? Is there a biblical alternative that can avoid politics and ideology without ignoring current events? Richard and I reflect on these questions as we discuss 1 Samuel. American Christians take heed. The Lord is patient and ready to give you exactly what you want. So be careful what you ask for. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 86 of the Bible as Literature podcast. There is a trend in contemporary Christianity in the United States, and it's something that cuts across all denominations and affiliations, and that is this tendency to follow the lead of secular culture and split into political ideological camps within the various churches. So, for example, you have conservative Orthodox churches and liberal Orthodox churches, conservative Catholic churches, liberal Catholic churches, conservative evangelical Christianity, which is known for its association with political republicanism, progressive liberal Protestant churches that are affiliated with a whole range of ideas and movements on the left. But today I wanted to talk, Richard, about how this is problematic and where I think it's coming from in terms of scripture, because one of the ways that people have tried to respond to this, I think is just as problematic as the problem of ideology itself, and that is to shy away from tackling the difficult and painful issues that we're struggling with. Take, for example, the 160 million refugees globally. Most churches are willing to say, oh my gosh, this is a terrible problem. How can we help? Which is not a bad response. Then there's another segment of churches that will then go either left or right. But there's another option that is almost always ignored and always pushed aside because people either aren't interested in it or are afraid to traverse those waters. And that is to whip out the sword of the spirit, which is the sword of the gospel, and to wield the prophets and to dive headfirst into the scandal of these problems and confront the assembly, that is your church community, whatever denomination or community you are a part of, to confront that community squarely with the accountability for what's happening and to try to help the community that's being addressed by the gospel today develop a scriptural way of discussing issues 
that are otherwise understood within the framework of political ideology. It's more than simply a pastoral response that tries to get people to care about social justice, which can itself become a kind of ideology. It's about the shame of the cross. And I think we have an excellent opportunity within the context of First Samuel to tackle this problem head on. And I know you've been doing some work in First Samuel. Could you give us a little bit of background? I wanted to focus on chapter eight, but I think it's important to provide some context. Right. So in First Samuel, there is this fighting that's going on between the Philistines and the Israelites. And the Lord is trying to bring some, the word you used is accountability to them. So with this fighting that's going back and forth, the Philistines keep beating the Israelites. And after one battle, the Philistines went back to their home and the Israelites said, you know, we should get the Ark of the Covenant and bring the Ark of the Covenant in. That will help protect us. So they were all super happy and there was cheering and stuff so much. So the Philistines said, oh no, what happened? What's that there? And the Philistines say, these are the gods that brought them out of Egypt who defeated Pharaoh. But you know, we're just going to have to be men and just go and fight. And lo and behold, the Philistines won, captured the Ark and brought it back. And the Israelites were devastated. They even lost more troops on that day than the previous days. They couldn't figure out what happened. Well, once the Ark was brought home by the Philistines, it was put in the Temple of Dagon, then started causing the Philistines all kinds of problems. And so the Philistines say, what can we do to get rid of it? And so they got rid of it, and they offered a big sacrifice. They decided they didn't want to be bad like Pharaoh and decide to get rid of it and then hold it back and then decide to get rid of it and hold it back. They said, no, just once and for all, let's just get rid of it. Goodbye. And the Levites were very happy to get it back. There was more rejoicing, but they were still defeated by the Philistines. And so the Lord told them, oh, the problem is you need to put away your other gods. You need to turn back to me turn away from the balls and follow me and listen to my teaching. And that's how you're going to preserve yourself. That's how you're going to be protected is if you turn to my teaching and turn to me. And once they said, okay, we repent at Mizpah, they decided that they were going to turn back to the Lord and lo and behold, they defeated the Philistines. So there you go. It's been proven. The Lord said, if you just follow me, everything will be fine. Everything's going to turn out okay. Just make sure you follow me in everything and all the time. But that's, that's it. That's all you got to do. That's not what they want. What they want no. is a political solution. What they want is ideology. They want infrastructure. They want kingdom. They want something concrete that they can count on, that they can look at. That's why they wanted the ark in the first place to protect them. We've got this thing. If we have this thing, we all touch this thing, then we don't have to worry about anybody doing anything to us. We have this concrete representation of our Lord in our midst, and therefore we don't have to worry. It's a beautiful metaphor because, again, this is exactly what the ideologues in the conservative and the liberal churches do with Scripture. They do the same thing Moses did when he came down from the mountain. They use it as something to be wielded as a weapon or a sword of ideology and identity. And I think this is what's so interesting about the metaphor in the New Testament, this idea that we associate with Paul of the sword of the spirit, because it's not wielded in order to gain any worldly advantage or in defense of any ideology 
or worldly kingdom or identity it's wielded to undermine those things so it really feels like dark humor like tragic humor almost like monty python but darker that they're taking the sword of the spirit which is god's instruction and using it as though it were a nuclear bomb or a tank. No, if they have the law and they put it in a box and carry that box around with them, then everything will be fine. No, 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 no. You actually have to do the stuff that's written on the law. That's what's going to make you fine. It's not your thing to put in your box right? to claim that you have as an advantage for you against the others. This is the basic problem that the text sets up within the plot. Yeah, and it's interesting. The Philistines are almost the good guys because they say, look, the Lord is fierce. We need to get rid of the ark, and we just need to submit to him because he could crush us any time. Let's just submit to him and admit our defeat in front of him. We'll fight as best we can, but we really have no hope because that God can crush us. But isn't that you know, interesting? Because the Philistines in the text aren't protagonists. They're not always doing the right thing. But here you have a story where Israel imagines it should be hearing about the politics of Israel, when in fact the biblical writer is showing you how your enemies get it and you don't. Right. And I think, again, I'm going back to pedagogy and preaching. I think the text is showing us how to teach. When people talk politics in churches, they talk about why the Americans are right or how the Americans can succeed or how we need to change America so America can be great. But that's not what God is doing here. He's mm -hmm. telling you the Philistines get it and you don't. And then once Israel wins, then the Israelites are still nervous for some reason. And that's where we start chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. So Samuel has the next in line, and looks like these guys are going to be bad news. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now this is interesting, before I get to the rest of the verse, because if you understand the psychology of the city, and before the city, the tribe in the ancient Near East, and how people struggle to find permanence in their patriarch first and later in the king, you can see the dilemma. You can see how the people are approaching the question of life and survival from an ideological point of view. They're doing the math and they're basically happy with what they've gotten under Samuel. They don't understand that it's God who's providing. They see that Samuel's going to die. They see that his sons are idiots. And so they're trying to figure out who his successor is going to be because the people don't want permanence from the Torah. The people want permanence from a tribal sheikh or a king. So here you actually have the paradigm shift from their leader who's not a king, but a prophetic figure. And they're going to him and they're about to say that they want a king. One thing that is significant here is how they reject the Lord implicitly in their speech because they don't say, your sons do not walk in the way of the Lord. In your ways. In your ways. Right. For them, Samuel is the standard. 
because they and, want what all of the other nations have. So they say to poor Samuel, who is surrounded by failure, they say to him, now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. So that's the sin. They're asking for a king other than God. But there's even something more that just occurred to me. This issue of Samuel's children walking astray and being foolish and being failures is a big issue because it means that Samuel is a failure. The father is held accountable for the failure of the children. So this actually increases the foolishness and the stupidity of Israel's request because you are giving credence to the ways of someone who couldn't raise his own children correctly. I think it also shows that Samuel himself is a fluke because Samuel was the student of the priest Eli, whose sons were failures and corrupt and cause all kinds of problems. And then Samuel has sons who are failures and corrupt and cause all kinds of which problems. God lifted him up, which means God is the reference. Right. And God lifted him up by speaking to him and Samuel listened to his word. He said, I hear you, Lord. And then he did what the Lord commanded him. So the way that one should walk is not in the way of Samuel. One needs to walk in the ways of the Lord. But they're looking once again to a human lineage. And this is where in the New Testament, the genealogy in Matthew and the birth narrative in Luke dynamite Israel's request. Because God does in the womb of Mary what he does with the function Samuel, the prophet here. He intervenes with his own seed, and he breaks the human line, and Israel's mm -hmm. rejecting it. And I think this is really important. This is how Scripture presents an alternative to choosing a side in the ideological war. Because Israel right now, in approaching Samuel and asking for the continuation of his line in the person of a human king, in doing so, Israel is choosing a side with Israel, and that's a problem. If you choose to accept God's intervention through the prophet, then you have to accept that the Philistines might actually be the other whom God chooses to put you to shame unto your instruction for your sake, but not in the way that you would expect a king to provide for you. So it's tricky because God's approach here, and I think the people of Israel know it, and that's why they're turning their back on him. God's approach puts you in his household, but it's not necessarily easy or fun to be in his household. Furthermore, the way that the people reject the Lord is not just in seeing that the ways of Samuel are the reference, but they also say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The other nations don't have kings that follow the ways of the Lord. They really don't care about the ways of the Lord. It's being very subtly repeated over and over. You know, they want someone to walk like Samuel. They want someone to walk like the kings of the other nations. But what about doing what the Lord tells them? Because what's strange is in the previous chapter, as soon as they started, just a little bit, to walk in the ways of the Lord, all of a sudden they were successful. One chapter ago, and they already forgot. And this is the problem, is they can't see that it's the obedience. The people have to obey, otherwise they will face defeat. Otherwise they will face destruction. 
That's what the prophets keep trying to say, and that's what our modern people can't see, that it's not because we've got a great political system or economic system or moral system or religious system in our country that keeps us safe. It's only the Lord, by his whim, who kept us safe. Right, and fighting for your country won't keep it safe. And trying to find the best way to fight for your country won't keep it safe. You shouldn't be fighting for your country. I'm talking about the ideological battle to say what's right for America, which is what the churches are engaged in. They are behaving like Israel in 1 Samuel. This is the point. I think the responsibility of the preacher, though, is to do what 1 Samuel does, which is to enter the fray and talk about the same thing that the people are interested in hearing about, which is what's happening to America, what is America doing, what is this war about, blah, 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 blah. But then to do what the text of Samuel is doing here and turn it and provide them the only alternative that Scripture considers viable, but one that makes the people of Israel or the people of your political setting extremely uncomfortable. Because in receiving the security that God promises, they might not be getting what it is they were lusting after. So when a preacher presents American current events the way that Samuel presents the political intrigue of ancient Israel, he is offering the assembly a solution to their problem. But it's an uncomfortable solution because an American parish wants to hear how America can be okay but it doesn't work that way in First Samuel because we're not just talking about Israel. We're also talking about the Philistines and we're talking about them in such a way that you're forced to accept that whatever God provides for Israel may include their enemies. And the whole story in telling the tale of the political intrigue of ancient Israel is making fun of the people for their political orientation and shaming them for their harlotry and their idolatry. Mm -hmm. This is how I think a preacher must address current events. And in fact, if you don't, even if you are not creating a politicized church, you're allowing your assembly to become politicized in their private imagination because you're not showing them how the text is rewriting everything satirically. The problem comes from the people's hearts. The heart is the root of the problem. And I say heart, I'm talking in the Middle Eastern sense, their mind, right. their way of thinking. This is where the source of the problem lies. If they don't think differently, if they don't understand differently, then all sorts of evil will continue. Correct. This is really what has to happen. And for a lot of people, it's very abstract, but I think that makes sense because for Israel, it's very abstract because they want very concrete solutions to their problems. You, okay. will, be, you will be the slave of your taskmasters in your own country. You will be the tool of your own government. You will be manipulated and abused by those in power if you don't learn to bear the shame of what's happening in Syria and Yemen and Iraq. If you don't bear that shame, then God is not your king and you are the slave of your own Caesar. That's the point. But this is why people don't understand what Syria has to do with West St. Paul. They don't understand it because they're comfortable being under the boot of the American Caesar. But then you're on the outs with the God of Abraham. 
the way that people think, the problem always lies elsewhere. If Syria is messed up, they must be doing something wrong in Syria. If people on the other side of town are poor, they must be doing something wrong on the other side of town. If my government is messed up, it must be because those jerks in Washington are doing something wrong. What scripture is trying to say is that everything that's going wrong with you finds its source in you. What can you do? Where must you look? What do you have to examine to find the root of evil inside yourself? Dostoevsky tried very hard to teach this also. You know, even the people who seemed so good, they could only be truly happy when they understood that they themselves were the root of evil. And that's the only way they could unite with the rest of humanity. In Dostoevsky, what keeps us from our brother, what causes enmity between me and my neighbor, is me thinking that whatever problems we have starts with my neighbor. In other words, when you preach in West St. Paul against the people and make them bear the shame of Syria, you are preaching the word of God in the hope that they would look upon the one whom they have pierced and weep. That is the hope that we would weep, that we would turn, shuv, as we heard in the Minor Prophets, that we would turn and repent. And the funny thing is, when we do that, then maybe there is hope. I mean, it's not about affecting political change in Syria. That is well beyond the scope of our power. And the ideologues who claim otherwise are fools. What is within our power is to repent, but to repent on Scripture's terms, which forces us to take things that we think aren't our problem and to make them our problem. There's something about the pressure of these geopolitical paradigms that the prophets use. There's something about the pressure and the intrigue that really brings this point home. Then, yes, you have to trust God to deal with Syria. But let it never be said that you worship anyone or anything that contributes to the problem in the Middle East or anywhere else. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So the Lord exactly. says, give them the rope, let them hang themselves. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Which is so, what, yes, exactly, which is what I'm saying about Caesar. That's my point. I've told them from the very day they came out of Egypt to follow only me but they keep forsaking me and serving other gods. When they forsake you, Samuel, they're only following a pattern. This has nothing to do with you. This has nothing to do with your sons. This has everything to do with the way that the people think and the way that people act. It just proves to the Lord one more time that their way of thinking, I won't say cannot change, but will not change. Here's what's interesting about this. You want to put your trust in the princes and sons of men. You think that they can provide for you as well as the Lord. And we know further down in the chapter, we start hearing about how silly that notion is. But you choose to do that. Today, that might be bad news for your enemies. Maybe an earthly king will build a nuclear bomb and blow them up. Great. Congratulations. But now, what happens next? Because we all know that a king who's willing to attack another population 
could just as easily turn on his own people. And this is what I'm saying about preaching in Minnesota about Syria. If you are putting your trust in the infrastructure that abuses Syria, you cannot cry foul when that same infrastructure, that same institution abuses you. And the funny thing about violence and destruction, we learn from the prophets again and again that it develops a life of its own and it has an appetite that can never be satiated because the lust of the wealthy is boundless and bottomless and it will eventually turn on you. And what are you going to do in that moment when all along you've been trusting in the very thing that leads to your destruction? This is a central question in scripture. This is why you have to help people bear the shame of their national, cultural, social identity where they are and associate it with the suffering of the others. It's the only way to set people free. And nobody likes it. Conservatives hate it. And liberals call it negativity because they want to talk about building the infrastructure. And anyone who knows anything knows that whether you're a liberal or conservative, you're putting nails into the same building that's causing the same problems. Everyone, when they're looking for a new president or a new Congress, they always want them to bring economic prosperity. They want to lower taxes. And Samuel tells them what happens when you have a king. Here are the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you'll cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. What happens is people complain in our society. Oh, we're getting too many taxes. Oh, it's too hard to run a business under this government. And what do they do? They cry out. They cry out not for the Lord. They cry out for another king. But Samuel just explained what every king is going to do. Right. Every king is going to tax you too much. Every king is going to destroy your way of life. Kings do not bring economic prosperity to anyone except himself and his friends. Not to you. So what are you expecting? They expect a king is going to make life easier for them. The Lord says, no, I'm going to make life easier for you. No, we want a king. He'll make things easier for us. Well, here's actually what a king is going to do. We don't care. What do they say next? And the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us. They just ignore him completely. You're not going to listen to me? Knock yourself out. Go do what you want. Screw up. Let's see how that turns out for you. And when you come crawling back to me, I may or may not take you back in. At the end of the chapter is, the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. God here was the first liberal parent. <laughs> Let them go sow their wild oats. They'll be fine. <laughs> Thanks very much, Richard. Have a great week. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.